Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with a full roster today. We have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. But it's so nice to all be back in one place. Welcome back from vacation, Mike. You were in Ireland being the Irishman, but not seeing the Irishman, tragically. I know. And then because of my jet lag, I haven't been able to catch it yet. I have just enough energy to work all day. <laughs> I mean, that but seems fair. It, w- it won't be long. Well, lucky for us, Martin Scorsese has given us a peg to talk about The Irishman with a New York Times op-ed that was published just a few hours ago as we record this. Um, We're talking about various other new release stuff. And then we've got two interviews really this week. Uh, Joanna and I got on the line with Karina Longworth, the host of You Must Remember This, a podcast that if you listen to this podcast, you absolutely should listen to that one. Um, And we talked to her about her new series about Song in the South. And then uh, the episode will end with Richard's conversation with Willem Dafoe, who he might be our first returning guest on this show. He was on for... um, he was on last year, I think, for the Florida Project, and then came back to talk about the Lighthouse, which is very exciting. Well, let's start with The Irishman. Um, when I suggested that we talk about that movie, because it's now out in theaters, um, I did not realize that Martin Scorsese himself was going to reignite this Scorsese versus Marvel debate with the New York <laughs> Times op-ed. Um, I mean, we can talk about The Irishman film itself, but the whole idea of uh, Martin Scorsese battling for the last month with Marvel, I find f- kind of funny. Are you guys exhausted by it at this point? Uh, no, I think it's kind of good, and I think that that op-ed, I feel like, offered the rare opportunity for someone to, like, be like, let me explain my quote, you know, because basically the whole war had been ignited by, you know, someone interviewing him, and then there was a, you know, a, a quote that sort of went around Twitter, and then here he was like, yeah, I mean, I stand by it, but here's kind of more of what I meant, and, like, I don't think everyone should be afforded that uh, sort of latitude, but... um I was glad that 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 he got it because I thought the points he made in the piece were um, were 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 salient and interesting, and I don't agree with everything in it, but um, it felt like a very um, compassionate way to talk about the state of film right now. Yeah, it's it's interesting because that original interview that ran in Empire, um, I think, was done by Nick DeSemelian, and, and like the original piece was just like a wide ranging like Martin Scorsese career piece. It's very good, and this was like one tiny part of it that empire themselves didn't even like capitalize for clicks or promote or anything like that. It just got blown way out of proportion. And I think empire was frustrated because they like imagined pouring all this energy into this big thing. And then that's all anyone's talking about. I think Chris says he was frustrated because it's like, this was just a quick answer that I gave. Let me explain myself. And I, I, I like what Richard's saying that like, well, I don't know. I don't know how we decide who gets to have an op-ed to explain themselves and who doesn't, but I think Scorsese definitely <laughs> definitely should. Yeah, sure. I mean, it sounds like he's put a lot of thought into this and probably uh, my my sense is like he's probably been saying this for a long time. You know, they're not cinema. He has a whole definition in mind of what cinema is that maybe 
he created in order to exclude <laughs> Marvel movies and other superhero movies. And, and you can sense definitely a frustration with um, what gets shown in movie theaters these days, you know, and, and we've heard many, many variants of that argument over the years. Um, the whole idea that like adult movies, movies that have nuance, movies that have characters that, you know, you haven't uh, read about in a comic book don't end up on big screens. And so this is a kind of very eloquent, thoughtful one. Um, again, I think I... I don't necessarily agree with everything he's saying. I think that in some sense, like he did sort of tailor his definition to exclude something that clearly is not his thing that he doesn't really like. Um, and you could probably nitpick it and find many, many examples, including, I still think Joker uh, of films that, that could rise to the level of cinema, even, even with the definition he has. A movie he was planning to produce for a long time. I, he might stick up for Joker, too. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, but I think that on the other hand, uh, I, I mean, what is what is depressing and weird are all the people who just, you know, view this as 100 percent team sport and, and feel like they are obliged to go out and say that Martin Scorsese sucks. Um, and then I guess what's like slightly less depressing, but also a bit of a bore are all the people who feel like they have to like smash down those trolls and say when Martin Scorsese talks, you should listen, boy. But like, you yeah, know, there's some <laughs> Truth to that, I guess. It's funny because um, a couple things. Like, I, I I find this comment from Scorsese much more palatable than I do from, like, a Spielberg. We've talked about this before, but, like, Spielberg was the popcorn cinema guy when he started, right? That's what Jaws was. Like, that's... He was he was accused of, of killing cinema. So for him to sort of knock at Marvel movies, that's when I'm like, really, guy? But Scorsese, what's interesting is that I've been talking to some Marvel people about this, and uh, all of them are like, oh, it's media manufactured. We here on the ground actually don't care. That like, Of course they are, don't. They've got, like, <laughs> billions of dollars to sleep not, on no, at not even Not even, like, people at Marvel HQ, but, like, people generally who, like made Marvel movies or whatever. They're just sort of like people working in Hollywood are like, y'all are bored <laughs> and you need something to talk about. They're like, we're none of us are mad at Martin Scorsese. So like, who cares? You know? So I don't know. Well, and the a, a word that was kind of invoked around Joker is this idea of like a tour cinema. Right. And that quickly became like an annoying Twitter cliche, but that does seem to be what he's defending. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, even with Scorsese, you could say like, this is a guy who built his career on, like classy, arty gangster movies. You know, he took the gangster movie and made it and, and sort of injected something into it that probably hadn't been expected. So, you know, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of like art versus um, popular culture in general. But again, like, what are you going to, you know, like, I think I think it's interesting. It's an interesting argument. I think it's worth having and talking about, um, you know, and, and again, it would be ridiculous to say that Scorsese doesn't have standing to opine and, and have his views on things. To me, the most poignant part of the, the piece was just, you know, trying to kind of look back into the past and say, okay, so so what is this era of, of cinema that he came up in and what is he really talking about? Uh, and then you see like, you know, Taxi Driver, which is a movie that heavily influenced Joker, um, it was released by Columbia. It was a studio movie. And, and to think of a studio now releasing that kind of movie that isn't tied to any sort of IP or whatever, uh, if that, that, that would feel pretty anomalous right now. So if nothing else, I think we can see his point that... Um, the institutions in 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 Hollywood uh, 
aren't doing the same kind of work that they used to. Even if that work is being made elsewhere, um, there is at least that sort of demonstrable, tangible loss. But uh, yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, I feel like you know the first version of Hollywood was two billion metric tons of shit that were churned right. out, you know, on studio lots, and then it was it was maybe you know a, a next generation that said, well, what if we tried making something actually interesting and artistic in this in this format, and it keeps going back and forth. You know, I, I guess what one thing that I find interesting about Scorsese and a lot of these guys, and he talks about this in the op-ed is the the real desire for these things to be on a big screen with a projector with an audience you know a paying audience sitting together i do think that that's probably you know it's got to be sad to see that sort of go away for anything that isn't a, 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 a you know for the most part anything that isn't a very much optimized for a big four quadrant whatever you want to call it audience um, but it just feels like one of those things that like you can be sad about but i don't know that it's going to change yeah, I like that he acknowledged the fact that as someone who made a movie for Netflix, like he is participating in this shift in the way that movies are watched that Marvel is a big part of. I, I, I feel like it takes away some of the complaints that he's like trying to deny the the progress of history, which is some of the stuff that's thrown at Spielberg when he was trying to get the uh, theatrical window for Oscar consideration to be expanded and, and failed at that. Um, he seems just kind of realistic about the way things happen, but I think he's welcome to kind of mourn the idea that Marvel has been so successful at making these movies that, as he said, kind of eliminate risk in the way that they're made and that has changed the entire film industry around them and can i just interject and now i I'm, i before everybody tweets at me i understand there were great movies all along from the very beginning but they were always surrounded <laughs> by many many bad movies you know yeah. and that's the, the sort the of history of hollywood is many bad movies the silent era stands are coming from you mike yeah. <laughs> well i mean something that that inter- like to that point mike that scorsese evokes interestingly in the op-ed is looking back on his you know earlier career when he was sort of on the rise with a lot of the other you know quote unquote great directors of the 1970s was that that back then part of their project was defending film as a valid art form so as recently as 40 something years ago people still had this kind of i mean and, and that's a stigma that i don't think really exists anymore where like movies aren't really art uh, the theater is art, books are art, whatever is art. But like, so that's an interesting kind of perspective too. And and I think to have won that, and now to see it in, from his perspective being lost again to some degree, um, you, you you know you kind of it, it it all kind of ties back into the Irishman. It's someone assessing the past and what they've done and being like, what is this all about? You know. Well, I was going to ask how we feel about this being part of the Irishman's Oscar narrative. And Richard, I feel like you maybe just like I don't think Scorsese thought about the uh, the Irishman's best picture chances when he wrote this op-ed, but it does. You make it sound like maybe this all feels of a piece. I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I think that like we we all maybe just me in particular though have a tendency to sort of like infer a lot of you know filmmaker psychology in into their respective films and and you know for me I saw a lot of Scorsese's own pondering in The Irishman and um, especially in the kind of final 30 40 minutes and um, yeah I mean this this seems to be a sort of companion piece to it maybe it was never the plan to write an op-ed for the New York Times about Marvel movies but like you know I think that like he's clearly responding to a moment and like I don't know it's nice to see some of that agility from someone you know in his 70s who doesn't really have to do that um, but I think you know um, yeah it all ties together interestingly and um I think if nothing else, it just keeps that movie in the conversation while it's in a few theaters and on its way to being in many, many homes. 
It's a very nifty piece of opportunistic viral marketing for the theatrical run of The Irishman. You know, I mean, let, let's not let's not kid ourselves. Like, I think if that if that weren't part of the value of this, he probably would have thought about it, but not done it. You know, um, but yeah, he's making a case for like, go see my movie in the theater. Um, and and go see other interesting movies in the theater. So, I mean, that's, there's worse messages than that. Do you think that's going to be to the benefit of the movie in the end, though? Like, if, if the story about the Irishman is always Scorsese versus Marvel rather than anything that's actually in the movie, is that going to work for it in the long run? Um, I would say not. But, like, what we have to remember is the majority of the people still haven't seen this movie. <laughs> including you know me. I mean? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> including me. <laughs> I mean, I think um, anything that gets attention in 2019 is good um and you know and controversy is a is a much better way to get attention than than most others more reliable way i should i should put it um so to be in the mix to have people talking about it to have people say you know what i gotta go see this movie i want to see what he's talking about like what makes him so much better than you know something else that he's attacking like i think in the long run it's good and i don't think there's too many people in the oscar voting community who are going to be like how dare you attack marvel martin scorsese like that just seems like not a likely to be a common position there may be a few people who are like give me a break marty you've had the greatest run of all time and i'm trying to make a living um but i don't know that's going to stop them for voting for the movie if they think it's good can i circle back to something that like this argument is is predicated on which is this idea that marvel killed the mid-level movie which is not even a narrative we were saying a few years ago the few years ago it was uh, big TVs at home and streaming services and blah, blah, blah killed the mid-level movie. And so, like, I'm not sure, like, uh, is it is it clear that Marvel and, you know, other event films like that, Fast and the Furious, et cetera, et cetera, these, like, very tall tentpole movies are some of the only things that get people to the cinema nowadays? Yes. But are they the reason for that? I don't know that that's true. Like, I don't know if that if that exactly lines up. And that, that has become the narrative that Marvel killed the mid-level movie when, like, the mid-level movie was, was suffering and dying um, before then. Right. Yeah. And I think when you have something like, I mean, the scale is always a question, you know, like Disney just won't make movies like Queen of Cotway is what I always think of as like a touchstone movie that Disney made a couple of years ago. And it's like, eh, it made money, but not a billion dollars. So it's not worth our effort. Um, but the story is, gets complicated when you have something like Parasite in theaters right now, which is just like running all over the indie box office. Like people are coming to theaters to see this movie that I think is probably a lot like the way that Scorsese describes Hitchcock movies in um in his piece about how those came with surprise and they were kind of built in as this huge experience. Um, so the mid-level movie, it like doesn't exist in the way that it did in the nineties, you know, like the era of the Pelican brief, but it's, it's still there in different ways. And I think Scorsese and all of us can kind of take heart in that. You can catch the Pelican brief on Netflix. Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, the Pelican brief is a great movie and I was watching it the other day and lamenting like the lack of Grisham thrillers in the theaters and something that I loved watching growing up. But like, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that has moved to another platform and it doesn't mean that it has vanished entirely. It's just moved to a different platform. Do I miss it? I do, but I have to wonder like if instead of pushing back so hard on it, we should, just better adapt and and find ways to take advantage of the new mediums that people are responding to. Yeah, I think that like more than there being one particular culprit, be it big TVs at home or streaming or Marvel movies, I think that what kind of is the most instructive to acknowledge about like the death of the mid-level movie is that 
kind of like what's happening in politics to some extent right now is that basically what happened was that just norms eroded. For many, many years, studios thought they just had to make movies like that. And then all of a sudden they were like, well, maybe we don't. And and that, that feels like, regardless of what the kind of root cause was, that was the pervading sentiment. And, and I think that what that really speaks to is a more general idea of what it means to make money and what it means for a company to make money. Uh, and if we're, if the, the goal is to forever scale and scale and scale and scale, then you're going to focus on the big things that will take you there, not the sort of, you know, I, I recently recorded, I think it's fine to say this, uh, an episode of our, you know, I guess what's brother podcast, Blank Check. You've and, never been on um, that show before, right? Yeah, no, never. It was my first time. Um, and it was about the movie Philadelphia and uh, the Jonathan Demme movie from 1993, and, you know, which Denzel was in and had just done Pelican Brief. And that movie made $200 million worldwide. Oh it God. was like a huge movie, <laughs> and it's a sober, serious drama about AIDS. And it was a studio movie. It, came, it was from TriStar, um, you know, sister company to Columbia. And, um, and I... You know, back then, 26 years ago, there was a sort of mandate, like, we were a film studio, we need to speak to the current moment, we need to make this film. I just don't think that exists anymore. And whatever caused that lack of existence, I think is kind of moot and beside the point. The point is more to sort of address the ideological um, decision making behind uh, the kind of renouncement of of the mid-budget movie. Well, uh, so I, I actually would take that on a little bit. I mean, I do, I think that one of the differences is the shortening of the attention span in a technological yeah. era and the creation of these kinds of spectacles that set an expectation. And, you know, you still you'll always have or maybe you won't always have, but it seems like you'll always have a, a kind of um, whatever you want to call it, urbane audience that that wants to watch kind of interesting indie films and character studies and all that stuff. Um, and then you're going to have another kind of audience that's like bored out of their mind uh, if there aren't explosions every, um, you know, five minutes or, or less. And it feels on the one hand like that's sad and on the other hand that's life. And, and I, I do feel like there's a strong danger of kind of finding yourself in get off my lawn territory. And I also think that, you know, what will happen next is like video games will, you know, establish themselves as art the way that Scorsese was able to help establish cinema as art and, you know, and all the rest of it, like the, all this stuff kind of ebbs and flows. So on the one hand, I appreciate this sort of elegy, but I also think that it's just part of evolution, you know? It's just it's just like culture evolves with technology and uh, would be hard to try to, to, to define yourself as being against that. Maybe the problem is that millennials and, and their uh, younger, you know, Gen Z people are not going to have enough money to have lawns to chase people off of, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and all the lawns will be brown. Yeah, this is a very, Mike, I think Mike and I are espousing a very Gen X... Uh, I like to claim Gen X when I can uh, mentality about this. <laughs> Get off my timeline. <laughs> this year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. 
Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. Uh, well, the only pivot I can think of uh, from The Irishman to what we want to talk about next is that Al Pacino was one of many people at the Hollywood Film Awards, which is a, it, it, all awards are made up, so I don't want to call it a made up award ceremony, but it's one that is especially funny because it's giving out awards for, you know, at the very beginning of award season, it's kind of a really good way to read the chart of who thinks they have a chance this year and who is going to show up to, you know, accept the Hollywood Screenwriter Award uh, in November, which was Anthony McCartan of The Two Popes. Um, Richard, I think you might have been as amused by this lineup as I was. Yeah, so I I, 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 like, I was looking into what they actually are because they're, they're produced by Dick Clark Productions, which, full disclosure, a, a company that my sister sort of works for, but, like, so, and, and all, the Golden Globes are also produced by Dick Clark Productions. So I was like, okay, so, like, wh- why would they have a competing award show? So this is something that was started in 1997 by a guy named Carlos de Abreu, um, who was born in Mozambique, raised in South Africa, now is based in California. He's kind of this, like, entrepreneur of sorts. He has a, a variety, a kind of network of websites, one of which is hollywoodnews.com. Um, he and his wife, who was a former Price is Right model, um, wow. founded these awards. And there is a committee, an advisory board of people who vote on them every year. But like, it's never really clear who they are. Like, I think they listed like the director Mimi Leader was one one year, Richard Donner was one. But it's executives in town. And basically, it's this excuse to have a, a, a dinner at the Beverly Hilton, which according to a, a piece from the uh, LA Times by Amy Kaufman from three years ago, uh, is not a very good dinner. Um, and yet they still get everyone there. They get an amazing array of talent. They're not a very good predictive tool. I think, you know, there, there's a lot of wonky stuff that happened just looking back in the past few years of winners. But like, it's a very, very funny thing that like, a lot of celebrities are complicit, not to use that word in such a you know negative term, but like, but like, are just like willing to go along with this award show that like, no one really knows what it actually is. Yeah. No, that's the thing that kind of, you know, like Martin Scorsese was there to present an award to his producer for The Irishman. Like Sienna Miller gave an award to Bong Joon-ho. Sure. Um, And like Nicole (laughs) Kimmon and Charlize Theron are there. And they get a chance to be photographed. Like they look great. We're talking about them. So that's like part of the function of it. But it is just funny how like you can have an award show and just be like, hey, this matters. And eventually if you do it long enough, people will just believe you and show up. Do do we know how they are selected no it's it's all pretty shadowy it seems there is just this advisory board that gets alluded to whenever you try to like look into what this event actually is um 
but you know, and the funny, they, they're very self-billed as like the first stop in award season, and 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 you know, James Corden, who's hosted the show, the dinner a couple times. The show was once was broadcast once in 2014 on television, and then it got terrible ratings, and they don't broadcast anymore. But they still, you know, have had James Corden host a couple times, and and he was joking, and I think it's probably true, is that like we're here celebrating these movies that like three quarters of the room have haven't seen yet. Because it's only, yeah. you know, late October, early November. Yeah, like, much um, less America. Like, people there haven't seen these. Movies. No one's seen Bombshell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yet uh, and yet they're still able to wrangle this talent, which is, like, um, pretty impressive. But I think, as ever with these things, you just have to follow whatever this, the money path is. You the, know? the death march has begun, I think, is the, <laughs> yeah. is the headline for us. Yeah, you think you think these people they're never going to wear a pair of comfortable shoes until March. It's, uh, <laughs> oh they feel so God. sorry for them. They're it, arches. If you look at <laughs> if you look at the four acting winners, um, leaving aside the uh, what do they have do? They do like a newcomer breakout actor. They did Taron Eg- Edgerton and Cynthia Erivo, but they that's have, this week's contractually mandated Taron Edgerton. Yes, reference. thank you. Um, <laughs> they have Antonio Banderas for actor, which I think is seemingly a long shot to be mirrored by Oscar, but we'll see. Uh, Renee Zellweger for Judy, which seems likely. Al Pacino for The Irishman. And Laura Dern for Marriage Story. I mean, it's not a, that's not a bad, that's a pretty no. good roundup. Whoever I they are, they didn't do the worst idea. <laughs> On their website, they have the winners from 2017, in which they gave uh, supporting actress to Allison Janney and supporting actor to Sam Rockwell, so good call there. And then actress went to Kate Winslet for Wonder Wheel. So <laughs> the track <laughs> yeah. record can really go back and forth. There has to be some negotiating around who will show no, up, right? Yeah, and, of and course. I mean, you can imagine Netflix being like, okay, we'll show up if you give two awards to someone from our films, and then they, they yeah. figure it out from there. If you look at last year's awards, Beautiful Boy, a movie everyone remembers, won two <laughs> awards wow. for director for the director and for Timothy Chalamet. Hugh Jackman won Best Actor for The Front Runner, a movie again everyone remembers. <laughs> um, and then, runner. but hey, further down the list, Hollywood Ensemble Award, Viggo Mortensen, Mahershala Ali, and Linda Cardellini for Green Book. So okay. that actually oh, did, did, did travel through. Yeah. Well, they, they do spread. Coming. They do spread the wealth a little bit too. Yeah. Well, it sounds, it sounds from the like winners that you've mentioned, it sounds like they mostly honor people who have been working for a while. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess, you know, they've got a breakout award, but do you know what I mean? It like sort of seems to trend. Uh, oh, you've yeah. earned this. You've earned this award, which, you know, we expect Laura Dern certainly to to win this year for Oscar. But you know what I mean? That's not always the case with Oscar. Or it just means you're famous enough that we've heard of you and we want you at our party <laughs> right, <sure>. right. <laughs> it, it kind of reminds me of when i was in college and you know we would have this end of the year like theater majors banquet where we would essentially just give each other awards oh yeah <laughs> there was oh, no yeah. like outside audience for it we well, were just like make you wonder if like you know should we just start our own award show like maybe it's a good racket we should be in it seems fun I think we there should. There must be some rich person listening to this who can bet, who can fund, you know, the can, can bankroll can, our award show. Yeah, exactly. Let's yeah. do right. a yes no Twitter poll and uh, <laughs> with a link to donate. Start a GoFundMe. I've, I've <laughs> already put a deposit down at, you know, Cipriani 42nd Street. So, well, you guys, we could just call it the Little Gold Men Awards and hand out little gold <laughs> statuettes. Right? I mean, but, but that don't resemble Oscar too much. Otherwise, we'll get sued. They should look it's, like us. Obviously. It's too easy. <laughs> Richard, just little. The Richards. The Richies. Aww. The Richies. The Little Richard. (laughs) Um, Somebody yelled at me, a publicist yelled at me the other day um, at our summit for saying that um, Joaquin 
is not going to campaign very much, pointing out correctly that he is on the cover of our magazine and has been doing other stuff. But one, you know, <laughs> theory that we've been talking about is that Joaquin, Adam Driver, even De Niro are not likely to be super, you know, busy going to all these events, the Death March events. Um, so that may be that may help explain why Antonio Banderas, who's wonderful and I think is going to get nominated, but 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 gets to claim this award. But anyway, it's fun to sort of try and figure out each one how they happened. I love that it was presented by Dakota Johnson too. Like you forget that they're sort of related. Yes. Um, and I think she talked, she called him Poppy, I think in her, in her speech. So that's like a cute way to, you know, you know, not that Antonio Benares has to prove that he's a Hollywood legend, but you know, and having the next generation kind of tribute you like that and literally be your stepdaughter or whatever, however they would describe their relationship. Her dads are having such a good year, Don Johnson and Antonio. <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> I love the it. The Don Johnson sons is one of my favorite <laughs> things of 2019. I agree. The year of Dakota's dads. Let's make it happen. <laughs> um, I can use this a second to the other thing we wanted to talk about, responding to a, a Twitter question, because uh, Olivia Wilde received a Hollywood Film Award for Breakthrough Director uh, for Booksmart, which I think we've been talking about Booksmart enough to know that we're all really happy about that. And we got a tweet from Davey Hampton asking about the Best Director race and whether or not anyone was talking about Olivia Wilde and Booksmart. Um, and I responded, I think that uh, screenplay might be the best hope for Booksmart. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but what do you guys think? Should we be talking about it more my beloved book smart yes um, take the place <laughs> of my beloved blocker yes. um yeah no i mean i think what i would love to see <laughs> love to see it uh everyone listening to this podcast who hasn't seen book smart it's streaming go watch it i every person who has caught it on streaming has told me and maybe i'm a selective audience but has told me wow can't believe i slept on this one in the theater so you know just do yourself a solid you have a great time at home well, and they're definitely they're definitely making that case for it now in a, in a bigger sense. Like I was just at the Savannah Film Festival, which is you know a, a festival that has a lot of money and can bring all the big movies. And they had not only a screening of Booksmart, but they had Olivia Wilde there doing things. And like they're they're definitely going for that exact like you missed it narrative. Yeah, Olivia was also at the Mill Valley Film Festival doing some stuff. So I think she is definitely working um, very hard to, you know, keep her her film in the conversation. And um, everyone would be so lucky to watch it if they missed it. Um, And I would love to see it get in there for screenplay. I don't know, like it has two things working against it, right? It has this underseen aspect to it. And then it has, it's like, you know, about teen girl. I mean, mean, I know Lady Bird exists, but it has, it's about teen girls and it's like a comedy more so even than Lady Bird. And so I just feel like those are things that people don't take seriously enough for the Oscars, you know, to their detriment sometimes. It also feels like, uh, and this isn't always true, but like there's not necessarily that much room for more than one like indie summer hit and Booksmart had its struggles at the box office and you've got their farewell, which was an indie summer hit. And so I think there's like a mental sense of that's the slot for it. And especially because we had a female writer director from that one as well. And that's another kind of unfair quota system that exists. But I do feel like the farewell might take away some of Booksmart's potential energy there. I mean, the Academy really should address that rule that only one woman can be nominated. (laughs) (laughs) Bing Crosby made them do it. They just can't get rid of it. (laughs) Oh, Bing Crosby's stands are going to come after me on that one. The Bing heads? Oh, no. (laughs) The ghost of Danny Kaye is going to visit you. (laughs) 
Okay, so first we're going to share the conversation that Joanna and I had with Karina Longworth, who is the host of the You Must Remember This podcast, and someone who we both know, Joanna, but I think we both get like mildly starstruck on the line with Karina because we both love her podcast so much. Um, yeah. And it was uh, it was such a fun conversation to get to hear about her song in the South series. Yeah, she's so lovely. It's so lovely to talk to her. I I always yeah get a little oh it's Karina uh, when she's around so that's what you'll hear from me next. <laughs> um, but uh, just to set it up, her series is about it's called Six Degrees of Song at the South. It's about kind of Disney's famously uh, impossible to find movie from the '40s that's uh, based on the Uncle Remus stories. It's uh, has all kinds of problematic racial things going on in it. And what I think her series is so good at pointing out is that it's not just like oh well in the '40s people were super racist and they didn't know better. Like there were protests. The NAACP was all over this movie. It's not just some relic of another time. It had a lot of, uh, you know, cultural forces going into it that made it that way. Um, So you should listen to the show and then um, listen to our conversation with her about it. So now we'd like to welcome Karina Longworth, the host of the You Must Remember This podcast, who has uh, really graciously agreed to join me and Joanna to let us grill her about her new season. Hi, Karina. <laughs> Hi, I'm thrilled to be grilled. <laughs> well, it's, I feel like uh, your show has been around weirdly around the same amount of time as Little Goldman. I think I remember you like coming on to talk about it in the very beginning of our show, and uh, it has grown so much, and it's been fun just to have you back on there. Even though I feel like every season comes up, and it's like the Oscars are one thing, but here's all the real stories about Hollywood that we should talk about instead. (laughs) Well, this one, um, as you guys know, because you've listened to the upcoming episode, there is some Oscar stuff. Yeah, it was uh, it was very satisfying for for both of us, I think. Um, and Joanna and I think both have a ton of questions, but kind of the general one to start with that you get into some in the first episode of the season, uh, which is about Song of the South and Disney, and um, it's called Six Degrees of Song of the South. Um, but why was it that Song of the South is what grabbed you to build this new season about? So I don't think I had thought about Song of the South in a long time, <laughs> um, but I was I was working with some people who were looking to do a television show set in classic Hollywood, but about the African American experience of Hollywood, and so I like was supposed to come to a meeting kind of with a bunch of ideas, you know, just like a list of ideas and be able to talk through all of them, and I put on that list Song of the South, and just in learning um, a little bit about the production of the film, I found out for the first time that it was co-written by a white communist screenwriter named Maurice Rapp, Mm -hmm. who was almost immediately blacklisted. And I had done a whole podcast season about the blacklist, and I had not come across that story. So I was just like, wow, if, if I didn't know about that, about Song of the South, I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff I didn't know either. And then those people I was, you know, making that sort of list of ideas for, they weren't interested in Song of the South. So that freed me up to, you know, take the time to figure out what those other things that I didn't know about it were. And it turned out there were plenty. (laughs) Was the imminent launch of Disney Plus in your mind at all when you started figuring this out? Because I remember you kind of teased what the show was going to be by screenshotting that massive Twitter thread they had. Um, And it is one of the like really famous absences from the Disney Plus lineup. So it feels like it's in the water in a way that it, it wasn't even a few months ago, even without your show. Yeah. Well, when I first started doing this research, it was in March. And I can't remember if Disney Plus had been announced by then, but it wasn't the first thing I was thinking of. The first thing I was thinking of was that Green Book had just won the Oscar for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so like that was starting this conversation about this idea of the black experience filter through the white experience. And there's sort of no more um, infamous example of that than Song of the South. And 
Um, so I knew that there was going to be a contemporary conversation to have. And then by the time I was actually putting the research into the writing, which was maybe June, um, I was very aware that Disney Plus was coming. And so I was able to kind of talk about that a little bit in, you know, the episodes. Yeah. But it was it was never it, it tr- it's basically a happy accident that the podcast is airing in the middle of the run up to Disney Plus. It like it's a result of the show taking a long time to research and produce. It's a result of me uh, it reached the end of my contract with my previous podcast company and then having to, having it take months to find a new podcast company. So it's just like a bunch of things that happened that had nothing to do with, you know, trying to capitalize on Disney Plus, but that's sort of a happy accident. I'm sure they're thrilled too to have you talking <laughs> about that song itself. <laughs> Um, I'm curious. You you talked about uh, seeing this song, uh, this movie as a kid. Uh, you and I are sort of roughly the same age. I also saw it in the '80s. You know, it was re-released in theaters a few times. Never available, as you've mentioned, on home video. So there's just like a few of us who have seen yeah. it in, in the theaters. And what was also interesting to me is that you and I had very similar experiences, both with Song of the South and with some of the other properties you mentioned, like um, watching Bojangles dance with Shirley Temple or uh, Fred Astaire put on blackface and swing time these were all things I watched as a kid with the like context of my very liberal mother being like and (laughs) here's the context to go with what you're looking at and I'm curious you know like if you thought about that own context that your mom provided when you saw Song of the South and then what about people seeing this without the benefit of that context well, first of all, I just want to say that for people who haven't listened to the episode where I talk about this, my mother um, was born in 1952. She was white and Jewish and considered herself to be very liberal. And that was a point of conversation in my household growing up because my father was like a corporate accountant and was not liberal. And my <laughs> my mother like really hated Reagan. And and so there was that dichotomy in my house. And, and when she took me to see Song of the South, she prefaced it by saying this is a movie about white people and black people getting along or something like that. Mm. And mm-hmm. so that I think that context is, you know, kind of a false context because I don't think that's what that movie is about. No. Um it maybe it's ostensibly about that, but there's so much more going on that's so much more complicated about race relations and you know, I my mother died in 1991, so I can't like have a conversation with her about this, but the fact that she being who she was said that to me in 1986 is kind of just evidence of of what was wrong with the discourse around this film in the 1980s. But then, I mean, I think the Bojangles and the Fred Astaire stuff is a little bit different, you know, because that stuff is really more truly a quote-unquote product of its time than Song of the South, which is something that people who want to dismiss the problems with Song of the South often say that it was a product of its time. But as I talk about in the podcast, it was protested while it was being made. It was protested when it came out in 1946. White film critics accused Walt Disney of wishing the Emancipation Proclamation had never happened. <laughs> so, um, it's yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, we all three of us on this phone call are white people, and is I feel like often you find yourself in a situation when you're talking about race in Hollywood where you kind of figure out what story you are inclined to tell. And as a historian, like you're doing a amount of research and you're citing a lot of historians, but I'm just curious about the way that you went into talking about this, like to to talk about it as a white person because it's something that I think trips up a lot of people and have a hard time addressing these things and like looking at things for ourselves, like you're saying, where you're you're presented something as being one thing and then you look at it again and realize that was kind of white privilege giving you a filter on something like Song of the South? 
Yeah. Well, in terms of my white privilege, I've just tried to be transparent about it. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to pretend to be anything I'm not or to have experiences that I haven't had. Um, And then in terms of just trying to be like respectful and and get it right. um, One thing that I found really useful was reading the work of black film historians and black historians in general. and, And throughout the season, like when I'm when I'm relying on their research as much as possible, I quote them by name. Mm-hmm. And so one of them is Donald Bogle, who's a great black film historian, great film historian who is black and who has also done a lot of work on on black history in Hollywood. Um, and he wrote a whole book about the way that Hollywood uses these sort of minstrel stereotypes, which was super, super helpful. So when I'm talking about you know, the mammy stereotype. I'm not pretending like I invented these theories <laughs> or um, that that research is, you know, entirely mine. Um, it's I'm trying, you know, I'm making sure that I'm, I'm quoting somebody like him as doing this groundbreaking research and study of it. Yeah. When, when I think about like what I learned in my film history classes, like there were some like studies of black films, but like it kind of s- tends to start in the sixties and seventies. Like, I mean, you're doing this research, mm-hmm. you're seeing what's out there. Is this as under research as it feels to me being a college student, or is this something that like like so many things that happen on the podcast, like the history is out there, it just goes, it's not included in the canon the way that it maybe needs to be. Well, I think it's a little of both. I mean, there are some good books out there, but. You know, one of the things that I've wanted to do at various points is is try to find out more about what it was like to, you know, be an actress who was African-American in 1937, like what their day-to-day experience was like. And there's just not a lot of documentation of that. Mm-hmm. You know, things like who was doing their hair, like what was the sort of interaction with agents like, things like that. Like it's very difficult to find that information. You get like one line in one book, one line in another book. But it's it's stuff where, you know— Unfortunately, I think it wasn't as preserved for posterity as white history was. Yeah, it's 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 kind of amazing to me because I've li- I've been listening to your podcast for years. You're always like, I read these five books and this is what I found. And when you're talking about specifically the writing of Zippity Duda in this third episode of this season, you're like, I looked and I can't <laughs> find the information that I need. And I'm so curious why you think, I mean, besides the obvious, why you think this particular thing has been so underreported over the years. Well, I mean, that that's different from black history in Hollywood. That's the sure, history of Song yeah. of the South. Um, right. So because Zibidi Duda was, you know, written by two white guys and it won the Oscar for best song. Um, and so the, the fact that like there, you know, there are many books about songs in Disney movies. There are many books about how Disney animated films are put together and they really don't include a lot of information about Song of the South at all. Um, And, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. I mean, I think one was that the movie was not a big hit when it came out. Like, it eventually made a lot of money because they re-released it four times theatrically after the first release. But it's, it's not considered a classic the way that something like Snow White is. And then the other reason, of course, is that they in terms of books and things that have been published after about 1989 when Splash Mountain came out, I think Disney has sort of discouraged information about this film being part of the official record or the official canon. Yeah, I think the thing that, and this is part about Song of the South, but also larger, the thing that was such a revelation for me in this most recent episode, I think, where you talk about how the history of minstrelsy got wrapped up into all these early animated characters, including Mickey Mouse with the white gloves and the 
kind of exaggerated black and white face. Um, and I think minstrelsy is something that is such a huge part of our cultural history. And this podcast made me realize it even more that we just don't talk about and don't see because it's kind of grotesque to revisit. Do you feel like having done this, you feel like that's a mistake in some way? Like, like, I mean, not like, should we reclaim minstrelsy, but like, are we hiding it to the point that we're like (laughs) denying ourselves understanding culture and understanding how race worked in things like Song of the South? Well, yeah, I think so. And I also think that's that's kind of a larger point of the whole season, which is like the fact that Song of the South itself is not commercially available in the U.S. turns it into this sort of fetish object, right? It, it give, The scarcity puts an allure on it that it doesn't deserve as a work of art. Yeah. Um, and so – and the same thing with minstrel stuff, like – you know, there's that that thing in uh, in Ghost World where Steve Buscemi's character like um, like collects like the the old sort of like Sambo advertising right. stuff. You right. know, mm-hmm. the the idea of doing that is because we've we've kind of like put it in a black box so you can't see it. Um, and you know, there's uh, Henry Louis Gates, the historian. He recently did a PBS documentary and book about um, Reconstruction. And that was super, super, super valuable for me in in researching that period and sort of understanding what Song of the South gets wrong. Um, but in that book, like if you buy the if you buy the audiobook or the the Kindle book or the physical book, he puts together um, just a a short sort of library of minstrel imagery in um, you know sort of public space. So political posters, newspaper cartoons, advertisements, things like that. And, I mean, that kind of thing is so important for us to understand happened and understand why it happened and understand how influential it was on history and on even, you know, present-day culture. Um, So, yeah, I just—I don't think that these things should be locked up, but they need to be discussed in context. One concept that I found so fascinating that you talked about specifically as it pertains to, you know, either Dumbo or Song of the South is this idea of animation blackface as in a white actor. And you you talked about the Amos and Andy radio show and how those were it started as two white actors doing these black uh, stereotypes. And then you get these animated properties where you have white voice actors doing these like, you know, these black a uh, black crow stereotype character, something like that. And that's just something that never occurred to me, honestly, until you talked about it, that they hadn't hired black voice actors to do this. And um, I don't know. I don't know that I have a great point there. I just want to say that that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't something that I had really thought that much about either. Um, I, You know, I have to say, too, I'm not a Disney head. Like, people, there are people out there who are super, super into Disney who think about this stuff all the time. And that's not the perspective that I came to, you know, doing Song of the South as a as a podcast season. So I have talked, like, since I, these episodes have started coming out, I have talked to some Disney people, and they know, you know, sort of way more about the controversy about the crows and Dumbo than I do. Um, but I, you know, I do think it's, it's, you know, an unexplored part of the history of Hollywood that, you know, there was such an aversion to um, giving sort of a full-time job to an African-American person that, something like Amos and Andy was employing white people. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to get into the Oscars because as you were mentioning in the beginning, like these most recent two episodes really talk about them a lot. And for the Hattie McDaniel episode, you play the uh, woman who was introducing her, uh, Faye Bainter, who you point out was in like, her own Civil War movie and how incredibly smug she sounds about giving Hattie McDaniel this Oscar. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's something that we see in the Oscars now, right? Like this kind of impulse toward like congratulating yourself 
the, toward, toward Hollywood congratulating itself via awards is kind of a, a running theme throughout the entire organization, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you see it again in, in the third episode where I talk about James Baskett, who played Uncle Remus, getting this honorary Oscar that was presented to him by Gene Herschel before they had a humanitarian prize named after Gene Herschel. But it's clearly significant that the guy who they then named the humanitarian prize after was chosen to be the person to give the honorary Oscar to the guy who played Uncle Remus. Yeah. I mean, like, Hattie McDaniel, because you talk about what kind of a revolutionary figure or a subversive figure that she was in a lot of her work outside of the screen. And her speech is so emotional. Like, she seems, like, so genuinely moved to have this Oscar. Like, does that, when you think about what it means for her to have won that Oscar, does it kind of, like, tamp down the, the cynicism about Hollywood congratulating itself? Like, that was a meaningful moment for her, and it feels like it's still meaningful that, that she won that Oscar at the time. Oh, yeah. No, it's meaningful. Things can be more than one thing, though, you know? (laughs) I mean, like, like with James Baskett, like, his wife was writing letters to Walt Disney being like, please fight for my husband to get this thing because he's dying. And, like, it'll all only be worth it if he gets this honorary Oscar. Isn't that insane Um, that we let that, the Oscars (laughs) be that powerful? (laughs) Well, Well, it is insane, you know, but it's, but you also can't discount the emotional power, especially back then. Yeah. Um, and especially given that these were the two first people of color to win Oscars. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. It's so interesting because at the time, you know, in when we think about Oscar history at the time, there were so many of these honorary Oscars outside the regular categories that um, I, I have to think that the campaigning, like an aggressive campaign from Disney for an honorary Oscar for a performance or for even zippity Doodah to win best song. What, what was, what was an aggressive Disney campaign, Oscar campaign like in, in these early days when things were, I don't know, so unregulated, I would guess I would say. Right. Well, that's the thing is like, it was sort of not campaigning in the way we think of it today with four-year consideration ads, but the right. whole process was campaigning because there was no transparency about voting. <laughs> um, and and also, like, there, they didn't have the th- – as far as I can tell, it wasn't the thing that the, it is today where, like, nobody knows who the winner is except for the accountants until they announce it at the broadcast. Like, Yeah, because it, the presenter so clearly knows that she's going to give it to Hattie McDaniel. Yeah, and so – and I think – I mean, I'm not, I actually don't know if Hattie McDaniel knew she was winning when she showed up that night, but I have a feeling that like they kind of allowed her to show up that night because she was winning Mm -hmm. and that it might have been, even if she was nominated, it might have been harder for her to actually get in the room if she hadn't been winning. But that's a, I mean, that's obviously a very specific case. Um, Do you get into this later as you get to the present? I think about Monique when she kind of dressed for winning her Oscar, like in tribute to Hattie McDaniel. Like, I feel like that's such a, um, a reflection to me of the the power of that win still. Yeah. And well, you know, one of my listeners actually pointed this out on Twitter to me. Um, if I had known it, I had forgotten. After she won the Oscar, Monique said that she was going to star in a biopic of Hattie McDaniel, which never happened. Oh. And and when you think about the story of Hattie McDaniel is basically like she went, she becomes the first person of color to win an Oscar in any category. Um, and then instead of, of, recognizing this incredible achievement and her talent and creating roles to suit it hollywood you know doesn't really know what to do with her she she is in this this you know pretty good john houston film called in this our life um where she you know has like 
a good scene where she actually acknowledges contemporary racism. But other than that, she's mostly going back to playing domestic workers. And so seven years after she wins the Oscar, she's playing a small, thankless part as a maid in Song of the South, or as a cook, sorry. So, and then, you know, Monique has spoken about kind of the same thing happening to her Mm -hmm. after she wins the Oscar for Precious, where it's like Hollywood does not know how to support sort of like larger than life African-American talent like hers. It doesn't know how to give her power behind the scenes. And so she, you know, she ends up basically like not having significant roles in Hollywood after she wins her Oscar. So when you you talk about Green Book being the context when you first started thinking about this, does a, does a win like Green Book, because so many people will wring their hands and be like, oh my God, what the Academy has fallen so far. This is the worst <laughs> Best Picture winner in history. Are you, does it... Does the historical context make you think like, well, what did you expect from these guys? Like, does it, does it feel like it's just the same thing always? Or does it, do you share the frustration that maybe we should have gone beyond this by now? Well, I think that history is a pendulum that swings back and forth. And um, in in researching this season, I came across a term I had never heard before, which is the Thermidor effect, which mm-hmm. basically means that like when when hit, like history or culture advances in a progressive way, there's always a backlash. It mm-hmm. always snaps back. And so I think it's pretty clear that that happened in the 60s to the 70s with the civil rights movement. And then Nixon comes in and Hollywood becomes pretty conservative in the early 70s um, with movies like Dirty Harry and stuff, which I talk about later in the season. And then it seems like it's happening now, you know, from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And it seems like within Hollywood, there, you know, two years ago or whatever it was, there was this thing of like, well, if you're like an old guy who hasn't worked in a while, we're going to kick you out of the academy. (laughs) And it seems like the people who like sort of still have the voting rights who are like close to that level are like reasserting their power. Right. Or yeah, or like Moonlight to Green Book as a back as a like whiplash as equivalent to Obama right. to Trump. Right. That is a more articulate way of saying that. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, Oscar voters and being around them, I saw that you were at the uh, Governor's Awards, uh, which, as we recorded, was a couple days ago, and like like at the fringes of this picture of Lena Vertmuller and Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> is that as incredible as it looked? So, first of all, I want to say that I have never been to an Oscars at all, and I really fought to go to the Governor's Awards because I was so excited about the four people they were honoring, um, Lena Vertmuller, David Lynch, Wes Studi, and Gina Davis. And so I actually took my husband's producer's ticket, uh, (laughs) and he graciously allowed me to do that. So thank you to Ron Bergman. Um, But uh, so, yeah, it was just super exciting to be in that room, and you know, at that scene, I like, I can't, I, you were correct to say that I was on the fringes of that photo. Um, I was, I pushed in, you know, (laughs) kind of pushed into it. I did not have a meaningful interaction with Lena Vertmuller. Um, I guess I could have, but her, like she, her English is not great. And her daughter was translating and I felt like her daughter had, was extremely overworked as it was. So I didn't want to, you know, try to like push it. Yeah. I was, extremely just happy to be there. <laughs> I feel like that's exactly what any of us would have done, just to have witnessed that in person and, and marvel at it. I know that uh, you and Ryan have been uh, film festival hopping this fall because, uh, you know, Knives Out is playing at a bunch of different festivals. I, I also believe that you guys make an effort to see as many films as you can sort of while you're at these festivals. Is there anything on the festival circuit this fall that you were really particularly delighted by that you're pulling for in the Oscar race this year? Yeah, well, actually, I mean, the only festival where I was a I had time to see anything was Toronto, but I saw a few things other than Knives Out, and 
I mean, two of my favorite movies of the year so far are movies I saw there, and that would be Marriage Story and Uncut Gems. Good and choices. actually, like, I, like the Uncut Gems people were at the Governor's Awards the other night, but the room was so big that I never saw them. And so, <laughs> I like, I I knew the Safdie brothers a little bit for when I was a journalist. I did a big story about them for their film Daddy Long Legs in the LA Weekly, which was kind of the first big story I did for the LA Weekly. So, and I haven't been able to see them, like, on this Uncut Gems tour. And so, Josh and Betty, I really love the movie. If you're listening, <laughs> and is it weird to you that they are at, like, on an Oscar track movie? It feels like somehow unlikely to me still, even though Inca Gems is great. Well, I'm I'm super excited for them, and I hope it's an Oscar track movie. You know, I I hope that Adam Sandler at least gets nominated because I think he super deserves it. Yeah. Let's let's circle back to Song of the South, and you know, Katie and I were having this actual mini debate before we hopped on the call with you, which is. Um, should Song of the South be available? And if so, in what form? Should it be available for any kid to stumble upon on Disney Plus? Should it be available for historians to show, you know, with that context that we were talking about? Um, you know, or should it just be vaulted forever? What do you think? So I would do with Song of the South the same thing I would do with Birth of a Nation. And arguably, like maybe there are other movies you could do it too as well. But I would try to create some sort of situation where, like, you can't watch the movie until you can watch a documentary about it. Mm. And, like, the documentary doesn't necessarily have to be from a, a super liberal point of view. It just has to be historically factual. Is there yeah. any kind of documentary that exists that would actually give you that information? Or is that is, do you have to listen to this podcast in the meantime? <laughs> As for, for Song of the South, I think it's it's the podcast, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that's it's, our curriculum that we're going to... I mean, it's... <laughs> It's really fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of your podcast generally, but just, you know, there's just so much that you think you know and you don't know or you've never even thought to wonder about uh, that you're presenting in this series, uh, in this particular season. And so, yes, everyone, listen, um, and thank you for, for doing it, Karina. Thank you, guys. I love your podcast, too. So, Richard, now let's listen to the conversation that you had with Willem Dafoe, the star of The Lighthouse, who I'm imagining was uh, much more pleasant to be with in person than his character in The Lighthouse. Well, uh, he was great. But, you know, Brett, our producer, and I had to trek up to Maine and, you know, take a boat to this island. and you know, <laughs> Drink kerosene. It was really exhausting and kind of <laughs> frightening, actually. Um, uh, but, yeah, once we got there, uh, you know, Dafoe is, you know, we've had him on before. He's He's just a thoughtful, kind of interesting actor who picks movies very interestingly like he has his interesting taste and so we kind of got into that and kind of what what interests him um and then yeah but mostly talked about the lighthouse which is quite a towering performance from him well i have the distinct pleasure of being in studio today with the great willem dafoe Willem, (laughs) thank you for being here thank you so I'm just going to get out right right there at the top of things and ask the lighthouse. What is what, what is the lighthouse about? Oh God, <laughs> uh, it depends on the person. Yeah, I suppose it's like a Rorschach test. Uh, maybe. I mean, it's um, it's two guys in a lighthouse. They uh, they're lighthouse keepers. One is an old hand. He's the regular lighthouse keeper, and then there's kind of a newbie who's uh, there for the first time. And basically, uh, they're to be relieved after a couple of weeks, but bad weather comes, and they don't get relieved. And things go very wrong after that. <laughs> they do indeed. Yeah. Uh, I saw the film at Cannes, and um, 
I didn't know what to expect because I'd seen Robert Eggers, the, the writer-director, his first film, The Witch, mm-hmm. and there is something tonally similar, I guess, but this is also something entirely its own beast. So I'm curious, like, when you first laid eyes on this script, what did you make of it? And did it leap out to you as something you just had to do kind of right away? Well, um, to give you a sense of how the script came to me, uh, I saw The Witch. Mm-hmm. And I saw it in the perfect circumstances in the respect that I had been away working and I didn't know anything about it. And I went in cold. And I liked it very much. And I thought, wow, this is... Who made this this film has a really distinct voice. I want to meet this guy. So I talked to my uh, representatives and arranged a meeting and met Robert. And we got along fabulously and agreed that we should work together. And it took a little while, but uh, this is the first thing that came for us to do. He presented it to me, said, you know, it was very direct. It was you and Rob Pattinson. It's basically a two-hander. Here's the script. And it was a beautiful script. I loved the text. There's an elevated language in it. I liked the character. I liked the events. I knew we would be shooting in nature, in very extreme nature. So I knew that would root it. It would be an adventure. And I like uh, basically the arc of the characters and what happens to them. So there was uh, a cornucopia of pleasures (laughs) to be had. So uh, it was a no-brainer. Do you, at this point in your career, you've worked with so many fascinating directors, which I do want to ask you about Mm -hmm. uh, in a bit. Um, Do you ever, I mean, do you, get daunted by things do things i mean like you know this production i'm i'm the shoot i'm sure was very difficult with the mm-hmm. elements and the you know um are there projects where you just are like scared of in a way all the time yeah that's kind of the point <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> you know i think uh it's human nature to seek comfort and seek the familiar but as an actor um you're given these relatively safe opportunities to challenge that that nature and to um, do things that you don't know how to do. And uh, the pleasure of that is you learn things and um, you have the possibility to be transformed through the stories and the experience of others. Um, The experiences you have (laughs) telling the story of others. And that's, that's the beauty. So I find that and I think you'll hear other actors say this as well. When you have challenges, it pushes you in a way to find a new way of being, a new way of working. And that's what keeps us alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking of other actors, uh, your co-star in this film, Robert Pattinson, uh, has had a really interesting career trajectory. You know, he became very famous with Harry Potter and then the, the Twilight movies. Mm-hmm. And since then has done, I think, a remarkable job of finding these interesting directors, doing these little kind of right. arty projects. How important was your rapport with him in, in shooting this movie? Because it's just the two of you. I mean, and, and obviously right. Robert behind the camera. But, like, did you guys work to establish that kind of connection before shooting or did it come on set? Not really. We we had some rehearsal, but the yeah. rehearsal was very particular because the film language is so, the language of the visual language is so rich that a lot of the rehearsals were basically to find out where the camera was going mm-hmm. to be and basically to put the scenes in the frame of the camera. Normally you you play 
you play around with the scene and then you set the camera. Here, the camera was set and you had to kind of submit to that frame, right. which is an interesting way to work because it really focuses you. It takes away certain choices, but that can be a great source of power. As far as Robert, I agree with you. Uh, one thing we have in common is I think we both um, are turned on by strong directors mm -hmm. and strong uh, and you know people that have very particular ways of making movies. So we had that in common. We had very different characters and very different uh, how we're positioned in the movie is very different. So there was nothing really to talk about. There was it was really about the whole movie was about coming together or not. Right. And uh, that was the process of making the movie. I mean, because I start out kind of lording it over him, and then it becomes a little bit of a power struggle. Initially, he's quite reticent, but then with time, I push him. I mean, the character pushes his character to a point where he kind of pushes back, and then difficult things happen. <laughs> uh, do you remember a particularly difficult thing while shooting? Was it was it the, the water? Was it the, you know, like what, what it's, was... It's the conditions, but yeah. that, that's also the pleasure because that tells you what to do. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it really yeah. informs everything. That uh, When you're cold, you can act cold pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. When you're laying in, you know, five inches of freezing water and uh, dirt's being poured on you yeah um <laughs> you don't even think about what has to happen because it's happening <laughs> right <laughs> so you're yeah. uh, receptive and you're you know you're experiencing something that you probably is beyond your imagination yeah yeah it's like it's verite i mean it's just it's, it it's, is yeah. it is so i liked hearing the story about you seeing the witch and seeking Robert Eggers is out mm -hmm. is that have you worked that way in the past where you've seen a film and been like I got to talk to that person a little bit yeah. a little bit I mean I not so specific of seeing mm -hmm. one film and saying hey I got to talk to this guy that that's happened some uh, but I've cultivated relationships uh, with Wes Anderson with Sean Baker I mean I've sought them out um, because I like what they're doing and then I uh, arrange to meet with them and we talk and then when there's an opportunity uh, that makes sense we've worked together I'm always interested in those careerist terms um, because you know a lot of the actors that I really love like yourself I find that when I ask them like do you have like a career strategy they always say not really how much have you had to sort of pay attention in your career to like the sort of economics of it the business of it or or have you been able to be pretty artistically minded? Uh, pretty artistically minded. And for almost 30 years, I worked day to day at a theater company. Mm -hmm. So that was my main job. And then occasionally, it started out, uh, my identity was a theater actor. And then people saw me at the theater, and uh, most notably Catherine Bigelow, right. and said, uh, you know, would you like to do this movie that I'm doing? And I did it, and I enjoyed it, and then I wanted to do more. But even then, I was day in, day out, mostly at the theater. And then slowly, I, I got an agent, I got a manager, and started doing the business of having representation and a career. But still, day to day was the theater. And I could only do so many movies. Now, 
now I still do theater, but it's case by case. It's I'm not no longer with the company, the Wooster Group. So that's changed things. But really, what set the tone was, you know, mostly I, my identity wasn't in Hollywood, for example. Right. And I went to situations that I, I thought would be exciting and thrilling, really. Uh, on some level, I mean, it sounds irresponsible, but I'm, I'm best when I'm kind of a little off balance, mm -hmm. uh, when I'm, you know, I cultivate a curiosity. So I've been kind of all over the map in the kind of movies I've done, the kind of roles I've done. And I don't say that pridefully. That's just the way it was. Uh, that's just the way it is. That's where I'm led. So in that definition, I think most people that have the strongest career-plotted careers um, are people that perfect a performing persona, and then that can be plugged into various projects. Right. Now, that can be a wonderful thing. We've seen some actors that you don't think of as, as being crazy versatile, but they work beautifully in movies. Um, so I'm not a snob about that. It's just particular to me. I'm, you know, I, I, I don't even think of myself as an actor sometimes. I am always kind of rethinking what I do. So I look for opportunities where I can do that. You know, the challenge, challenge that, uh, yeah. that idea of being an actor. It's like I have nothing to sell. I I want to have adventures. Right. I want to be transformed. I want to learn something. And then the things that I learn, I can, you know, apply to uh, challenging uh, how I think and challenging my sense of self. Other than the obvious physical challenges and the verbal challenges, what did shooting the lighthouse kind of teach you or what did you what did you take away from that? that Rob Eggers knows what he's doing. <laughs> um, yeah. That I always like movies where the making of the movie, uh, the movie is very is some sort of record of the making of the movie. Right. And of course, this is, you know, there's a very disciplined and formal uh, cinema language to this movie. It's very clear. So don't get me wrong, it's not cinema verite, like we're recording things that uh, as they're happening. But... When I see the movie, it looks and feels like what we went through. Okay, yeah, that yeah. that must that must feel nice. You're like, okay. it is, it yeah. is. It gives you know, it helps you kind of connect the dots in a funny way. It's a sure. it's a comfort, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because yeah. the nature of films are so um, collaborative that sometimes, not just myself, I see this in other people. You know, you can do beautiful, even heroic things and have them get lost. And you can do not-so-heroic, lazy things and have them be elevated by the nature of editing all these things. So when it's true to what it felt like when you're shooting it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's I like it. It's something that you, um, yeah, I, I can only call it a comfort. <laughs> You know, I would say in the past couple of years, you've you've you know, between the Florida Project and at Eternity's Gate, and now the Lighthouse and Motherless Brooklyn, like you've 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 had a really interesting run of films of late. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like a particularly exciting uh, time for you right now? It or, does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, because I'm I'm excited by performing, and 
I've been, you know, given some uh, nice opportunities. And they keep coming, so I'm, I'm happy about that. It's, I'd be a liar if I said it wasn't a good period. Do you have any particular project that you've worked on, and it's a hard question maybe, that like mm-hmm. you kind of hold, like has a special kind of glow in your memory? Like is there, a, is there a, a, a piece that really stands out as a kind of cherished item? So many. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Does that make me like a, a narcissist? No, you love all your children. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little bit like that. Yeah. No, there are many. I mean, you know, occasionally you're also disappointed. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, I'm not into uh, regret. Are you a big self-assessor of your work? I mean, because I talked to plenty of actors who never watch the finished version. Oh, I watch them. Yeah, yeah. I watch them, but I don't study them. Yeah. I watch them just so I know, so I can talk about them <laughs> right. <laughs> like yeah. this. Yeah. And also, I'm curious how they come out. Uh, but it's very hard to really... You know, it's so tied up in, in the shooting. And when I watch a movie, I can't really see the movie. I trust other people to see it better than I can. Because technically, I can notice certain things. Oh, they used that take. Hmm. You know, I thought there was a better one. Oh, uh, that's not at all like I thought it would be. Oh, that's better than I thought it All those things are happening. And not to mention, oh, I remember that day I didn't feel so well. Or, oh, I remember the director was mad at so-and-so. This sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm experiencing (laughs) when I'm watching a movie. So I don't watch it to say, like, ooh, you overdid that. Or, ooh, you... You were lazy there. Ooh, you know, why did you do that? I don't do that kind of analysis. Yeah, that's probably healthy. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. also it's over uh, and time to do the next thing. Yeah. And I think your lessons are learned. You know, you got to develop discrimination, but but you don't want to think about this too much. I think your lessons are learned intuitively. And when you make a mistake, I think you feel... You feel the hurt, and next time you won't go to the same place. Um, so I kind of gather, just you know, if if you're seeking out people like Robert Eggers or Sean Baker, that you're a pretty voracious film watcher, like in your in your spare time, or um, yes, yeah. I mean, I like film. It's like I seldom watch TV because there's too many films to see. Yeah, yeah, but but I know. I know plenty of my friends have more film culture than I do. I'm always a little embarrassed. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there are holes in my film knowledge. Yeah. So I'm not as voracious as some. You know, I, I do other things as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, I read a lot, and when I prepare for things, um, or I try to not develop projects, but w- when I'm thinking about projects that are down the pike... Uh, I tend to like to read and uh, related material. Did you read any fascinating lighthouse keeper lore when you were t- <laughs> about wikis? <laughs> you know, I didn't have to so much because Robert Eggers is so damn good at research, yeah. and he loves it so much. I mean, he he really is the kind of guy that believes that you know to understand what's going on now, you have to be clear about the past. I think he he thinks that through the past we can you know, talk about what's going on now. And he's so well-researched, and he shares that research with you. When I came into this, he had videos of interviews with lighthouse keepers. He had uh, period footage. Mm. He had all this stuff for the dialect, uh, for the accent. He had songs. He had 
beautiful pictures, all this stuff, and things to read. So there was plenty to uh, get myself in the mood. <laughs> yeah. Um, I lastly do want to ask you about Motherless Brooklyn, yes. another film you have coming uh-huh. out this fall. Um, is it a different experience to Edward Norton directed the film? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a different experience to work with a director who is kind of such an actor? I mean, this is his second film that he's directed, but you know, did, is there a, a, the, the approach different? You find? Um, well, you got to remember, Edward did something amazing here. He was wearing so many hats. Yeah. Um, so he's he's starring in the movie. He wrote the movie, and he's directing the movie. And when I'm in scenes with him, there's something beautiful about. There's a director, but he's in the scene with you, mm-hmm. and he's also the actor, and he's also the writer. So there's less a sense of being watched and uh, call and response. The call and response happens inside the scene. Right. That's not to say that he doesn't have advice or, or, or give you notes between takes, but there's something good about the outside eye is sort of no longer there. It's the inside eye. Um, so I've done that before. I've worked with directors that have performed in more in the theater, but also in films. And it can uh, be very satisfying because it's a little bit like, uh, you know, a boxer being in the ring with his trainer, you right, know, right. Uh, sitting on his shoulder rather than, you know, off to the side. You're in it by yourself and then you come out occasionally and he gives you advice. He or she, I suppose, um, gives you advice. It's, I don't know, it's, it's, it, there's something more direct about it and more thrilling. Uh, you're in, you're kind of, it's risky. You're kind of in free fall because he's got his hands full. But it was great. I, I really admired how he was everywhere on the set. And uh, he owned everything, everything there, you know, Van Gogh would say, I am my paintings. Well, motherless Brooklyn is Edward Norton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I would, I guess in some ways it's almost like they're throwing their chips in too. They're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be on screen yep. too. So we're yep. all in this together. Yeah. My yeah. wife says the same thing. She often has performed in her films and she likes it because she's on, you know, you know, she's in there with her people, with her creatures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's the, uh, the the general leading the attack, you know. Yeah, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, well, two really interesting films uh, in one season. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for sure. doing this, okay. and uh, can't pleasure. wait to see what new experience you have next. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please keep rating the podcast, reviewing it, telling your friends, and finding us at VanityFair.com, writing about all kinds of stuff that we talk about on the show. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, at Little Gold Men, and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Uh, Pelican Brief is a great movie. Dot <laughs> <laughs> com. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for how all four of us are going to feel right after the first annual Little Gold Men Awards goes to Katie Rich. We've got like billions of dollars to sleep on at night. <laughs>